We're going to bring you the queerest, awesomest radio right here to Radio Free Brooklyn. So make sure to check us out Saturdays live at noon on Radio Free Brooklyn. Welcome to the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VGR Nathan. And with us today is Megan G. Mahan. Megan uh, J. Mahan. Mahan, yeah. Um, so Megan is a published author, poet, cartoonist, and produced playwright. She's also a stop-motion animator, an award-winning abstract artist who works as a journalist for Blasting News. Megan uh, holds a bachelor's in English literature, a master's in communication, is presently pursuing a PhD in educational philosophy, uh, psychology, sorry. Um, she is an animal advocate and a fledgling toy and game designer. Welcome, Megan. Well, thank you for having me, BJ. It's a big honor to be here. Thank you, thank you. Um, so, the first thing we're going to talk about is just talking about like a uh, meaningful life and what that means to you and, and whether or not what you believe you're living a meaningful life through all these different pursuits. And, and t- tell us a little bit about what you, how you define a meaningful life. <laughs> Sure. Well, I consider a meaningful life. I consider a meaningful life a life uh, that includes basically spreading joy, spreading happiness, not doing any harm to anybody. But aside from not doing any harm to anybody, doing everything that you can to make the world as happy and as good as a place as it can possibly be. And I feel that I do that a lot through my artistic endeavors. Like I love teaching art because I love seeing how much people enjoy um, learning to do new projects, master new mediums. I have taught people from the ages of maybe two was the youngest and the oldest has been people in their 90s who have enjoyed doing things like sculptures, mixed media, uh, painting. And it's really great to see how they light up when, you know, they see their final work and how they it turned out better than they imagined. I also write children's books, and I love writing children's books. I also write, um, I'm known, believe it or not, on the other side of the spectrum. I'm also known as a horror writer. But I just think that anything that makes people entertained and makes, you know, their day more interesting and, you know, hopefully more cheerful, like especially with my visual art. My visual art's very bright and cheerful. I think that's a great way to ma- live a meaningful life. Cool, cool. And uh, tell us a little bit about what makes, um, what inspires you the most and what, what, where do you get that inspiration for that art and, and where do you derive the most amount of inspiration from? Well, I'm really inspired by colors. I absolutely love colors. Anybody that sees my work knows that for the most part, it's very bright and colorful and shiny. Like even if I do pieces that are black and silver, um, they still come across as being like really high gloss and shiny. So that's colorful. Um, But I do work a lot with vibrant, vibrant colors. Um, My major inspirations, as far as my art goes, I... Um, I like working with found objects. I like working with found objects, recycled materials, reused materials. And that's because, you know, I think a lot of things that people throw out are things that can be recycled into art, and it gives it a new life. And when somebody looks at a piece of art, it might look extremely expensive when, in fact, it could be made from pieces that were either found objects or things that I picked up at Materials for the Arts, which is a wonderful organization that... Um, provide materials for artists to do projects, uh, usually artists that are associated with some sort of a program. Like I got in because I'm associated with uh, Project Art and also something called the Upcycle Junction Market. Um, But I also am inspired just by the idea of like happiness, um, cheer, and my major artistic inspirations are Moreau and Calder. Um, And to a lesser degree, Matisse, but I do love his collages as well. But anything abstract. Abstract, bright, colorful. 
<laughs> yeah, it's really great. I think that um, there's a lot of different things to be found in discovered art mm -hmm, and absolutely. in uh, and finding things that, you know, perceptually we think about garbage from, from garbage to art or something like that, you know, some mm -hmm. things that people perceive as trash and then creating that into, uh, you know, there's a lot of movements about creating mm -hmm. these found objects and such. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So tell us a little bit more about, uh, in your own practice, how you're able to find the energy to, you know, on the different things you've done. Why don't you highlight one thing that is the most passionate about in your biography that uh, you feel like the most connected you want to communicate to the audience, yeah. Well, the thing I'm most passionate about right now is something that I'm actively working on, which is um, an art movement that I founded called Conscious Perceptionalism. So Conscious Perceptionalism, and yes, I made up the word perceptionalism, is an art movement that it's best for abstract artists, but people that work in real, realist art, especially like floral artists, can also use it. And basically what it is, it's a practice of when you create a piece of art, make sure to approach it from all sides equally strong. So thus, when somebody hangs it on a wall, they can choose which way to hang it. It does. There's no left, there's no right, there's no up, there's no down. It's basically art that can be viewed and perceived from various angles. And when you create this art, you create it with the purpose of it not having any specific direction. And I really, I like doing this because it shows, you know, when you turn a piece of art a different way, especially like abstract work like mine, you see something completely different in it. And it lets you see things through a more um, open-minded uh, spectrum, basically. My pieces actually can be created to... My pieces actually um, are rigged on the back, so they are rigged to turn 360 degrees on a wall. So when you hang it up, you know, you could push it, you could put it one way one day and another day, another way the next day. And I'm hoping to, I'm in the process of trademarking this, um, this term, conscious perceptionalism, and I would love to make this movement more well-known uh, to the artist community in general, because with art movements, they're created so that other artists can use them as well. It's a movement that a lot of people can enjoy. Yeah, yeah. and where do you see art going in the next uh, 5 to 10 or 50 years? Where do, you see art, where do you see the movements of art going? I see the movements of art. Well, art always changes and evolves, but I do think that technology has a big impact on art. Um, I think that we are going to see a lot more of art, you know, with technology. Uh, with technology basis. So what I mean by that is take something like for a 3D printer, for example. Now, 3D printers can print out anything that you give them, you know, in the system. So I would say that artists could make sculptures and then have them uh, 3D printed or elements of the sculpture 3D printed. And then they could take the smaller pieces from the 3D sculpture and put them into a larger piece that they want to do. I think the 3D sculptures and 3D printers can also help artists, I think, especially as we go into the future, make pieces, um, you know, faster, more effectively, more efficiently. Um, and so, I mean, I know that a lot of art, a lot of fine art really should be original rather than mass produced. But I just think that 3D printers will really ease the process, especially for sculptors or people that work with mixed media like myself. Um, I also see art going... Um, one of the things that I think we're starting to see a lot now is a marriage between art and um, performance art or spaces. So, for example, um, there was a thing in the city recently. It was a walkthrough presentation pop-up called Can uh, Candylicious. It was fantastic. It was really a lot of fun. Or Candytopia, excuse me, Candytopia. And when you went into Candytopia, you were basically walking through like a world of candy. 
And it was a lot of fun. There was theater aspect to it, and it was very, um, it was an installation. But there was a lot of art on the walls as well. Like there was a lady that made uh, j- art out of jelly beans, and they were hung up on the walls. And I've seen a lot of pop-up presentations that have included um, visual arts. So I think mm. we are seeing like a real marriage there now. And do you think in art, um, the beauty of the artistic piece is objective or do you think it's subjective? Do you think totally that- ob- Totally, Object- totally subjective. Oh, subjective. Subjective, yeah. completely. I mean, yeah. one person's art, like one person might look at it and see a masterpiece and another person might look at it and go, oh my God, you know, this is awful. Yeah. What were you doing? That's like, yeah. I know I get that reaction from my work because my work is very abstract and it doesn't make any sense. So uh, a lot of people see it and they like it and like, oh, it's colorful, it's bright, it's so pretty. But then I've had uh, presentations, especially in areas that they're more used to seeing traditional art like you know landscapes and portraits and people have literally looked at my work and then looked at me and been like you know there is something wrong with me. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny that's funny and you know, at the same time i think that there that you have to look at art in regards to what it's trying to achieve and there's certain objective ways in which mm-hmm. we can uh determine whether or not the, the artistic piece is achieving its objective you know exactly. would you say like my yeah. my piece my i have one objective when i do my pieces and that's to make people stop, stare, and hopefully smile. <laughs> if it's made you pay attention, if it's given you something to think about, if it's given you something to smile about in particular, it's done its job. They yeah. objectively are just meant to be cheerful. <laughs> and why do you think you make art? Or why, why do we make art? I think people make art. Well, I mean, I know me personally. I make art because it's just something that I love to do. It's a real passion of mine. And I get way more positive reactions than negative reactions. So I love that that feeling of like seeing how people react to stuff. Even I've had instances where I've been taking art um, to a location. Like, for example, right now I have art on display at Theater for the New City. Um, they are a wonderful, wonderful theater organization, but they have uh, art shows in the lobby. And I was carrying a, one of my sculptural wall hangings, as I call them. They're canvases that you hang on the wall and they pop out like, you know, almost a foot, some of them. Um, and I was carrying one of them into the theater one day, and I must have had five people on the street just stop dead and stare, mm-hmm. like just people that in the middle of their day, just like, oh my goodness, what is this? Um, another reason that I know that I personally make art is because I love the idea of making something, especially with the abstract work, it's so strange and different. It's almost like you're making something that shouldn't exist but mm. yet does exist so you're like just putting something kind of crazy yet bright and colorful into the world so i just i i don't know i just i get real enjoyment out of it and it's also kind of therapeutic to sit there and work on art yeah it makes me think about like when we think about why we're here and and why we're whether or not we're you know, living a, a full life or whether or not we're just existing so to speak mm-hmm. um what do you think is the difference between living and existing and well yeah it, well, existence is really just, there are a lot of people in the world, unfortunately, who are very unhappy. You know, there's people that live in really terrible circumstances, be they in war zones, be mm. they, they have illnesses. I mean, especially when you start looking at the world news and you see other things that happen, like, you mm. know, both in America, but even outside of America, you know, like it's, you know, there's a lot of people out there that really are very unfortunate and they basically just exist day to day, hand in mouth. They don't really have time to consider things like, you know, art or sitting down to enjoy something because every single day is a struggle. And mm. that that's an existence. And that's a very sad state of affairs. But unfortunately, a lot of people live it. I think with actual living, though, I think like the, the way that we encompass the term living, um, what do we mean by that is that you want to 
be able to have a life that you enjoy, that you can enjoy things in life, and that you can also find ways to spread joy to other people. You know, I think a perfect example of this is that, okay, you have to do certain things every day. Like maybe you have to go grocery shopping, or you have to go to work, or you're waiting for a bus, or, you know, something that's not necessarily exciting. But if you can, as you're doing these things, appreciate things, you know, you can pass um, a garden and think, oh, those are beautiful flowers. Or, you know, you smile because you see, you know, a cute pigeon on the street or, you know, you even if you're in the store and you see like a sign like, oh, that's a pretty color. I think if you can appreciate small things like that in everyday life, it proves that you are living and that you are fundamentally content because you are at least able to acknowledge the beauty in life. Yeah, yeah, it's so important to be able to appreciate these things and, and be able to get in touch with the, the source and such, which is one of the themes in our truth, uh, mm-hmm. in order to help us empower ourselves and our communities. Um, so, yeah, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about um, your beliefs on, uh, you know, what, what's our, what, we talked, she started a little bit in this, in this uh, segment, but uh, what our biggest mistakes as humans are, what is our big, biggest, like, what do you think the fatal flaws of human beings are? <laughs> well, like, right. yeah. Right now, the major fatal flaw, the thing that I think everybody should be worried about, and it's shocking that not everybody is, um, is the state of the environment, yeah. the state of things like you know global warming, the environment. Because I don't think that people need to understand. I mean, like if something happens to the earth, it could kill everybody. And then all of a sudden, all the human conflicts, all the squabbles that we have between each other go completely out the window if anything happens to the earth. And you look, I mean, now at least it's being acknowledged to an extent. But I mean, if you look at things like the state of the waters, for example, or the the plastic in the water, I mean, that's at least been getting a lot of media recently. And now we're starting to, you know, clean up the beaches and find ways to, um, you know, recycle the the plastic. But I mean, there's a lot of other things going on with the environment, you know, like... um, I'm not a very political person at all, but I cannot believe some of the decisions that have been made regarding um, the environment. And I just, I can't understand how people can say, oh, you know, well, it's cheaper to do it this way for now. Mm. It's cheaper because you realize that in the future, like it's going to cause major repercussions for humans, for animals, for the earth. And then it's really going to be even, I mean, if you really want to look at it just through a money point of view, it's really going to be more expensive because everybody's going to be sick and everything's going to need to be fixed and everything's going to be falling apart. But more than that, I mean, it's got to be about more than money. I mean, like it's about like basic health, quality of life, you know. So I, I just... The by far to me the most fatal flaw right now is the denial of the state of the environment and people that just don't want to do anything to help, like even if it's just recycle or to clean up after yourself or mm-hmm. you know th- there needs to be and, and there needs to be more of a push even with cars for example they're talking about emissions there should be more of a push for things like hybrid cars, um, electric cars. You know why has that not been you know more discussed? Um, so that that just that astounds me. Yeah, it's very frustrating when we're in a conversation, a global conversation, or even a country conversation that becomes regressive or becomes, mm-hmm. you know, we're going backwards instead of forwards. We're not, we're not really paving the road for uh, progress and progressive movements. Yeah. Uh, instead, it seems like we're going back into an age where, you know, things are not the way they should be. But mm-hmm. um, to talk a little bit about your own life and your own choices and such. So um, if you go over your life and think about things in your life, if you were to uh, watch everything that happened to your life up till now, would that be how? What kind of uh, 
kind of a feeling would that give you? Oh, probably very good for the most part. I've yeah. Had a really, yeah, I've had a really good life. So, yeah. so far, I've been very happy. So I definitely wouldn't mind watching it. Yeah. And what kind of, what kind of a film would it be? Or what kind of a, what would you consider, how would you genre it if you were to do that? Genre it would probably be like um, kind of whimsical, I guess, because I've yeah. always done a lot of stuff with... Um, with art and writing, I've always, and I've always kind of incorporated that. I also design shoes, so I guess some people would yeah. consider that, you know, kind of fashionable. Very so, cool. Yeah, but I guess, I guess kind of like, a, kind of a, for the most part, I mean, I guess if it was going to be about your life, it would be, you know, purely um, realistic. But I guess at the same point, I guess you could have like whimsical elements to it. Like, yeah. imag- like showing inside my weird imagination. <laughs> Capturing the essence. You yes, know? exactly. The essence <laughs> of you. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to think about with these parallel universes and such. This has mm-hmm. become kind of a the new Fandango and such. Absolutely. You know, think about <laughs> parallel universe and, and, and the you in another universe and things mm-hmm. like that. So what, what are your thoughts on that or what are your reflections on that i personally do not believe in parallel universes uh-huh. i like uh-huh. them you know because i i write science fiction or yeah. fantasy so i like them through that point of view like oh yeah. what if from science fiction now i don't believe in parallel universes per se what i do believe in and i know that this is going to make me sound crazy <laughs> but i tru- truly believe this i think that somewhere out in the universe somewhere out in one of the galaxies there is life on other planets oh, we yeah, are yeah, finding yeah. so many yeah. other planets now all of a sudden i i love watching the news um about science and about um discovery because right now we have seemed to have discovered so many planets and so many exoplanets and just so many new exciting things and i really do believe that on some planet somewhere there's definitely other life um, even if it's just like little fish-like forms or something, but I definitely do not think we're alone in the universe. Good, so. good. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting to think about and think about in terms of like, you know, uh, where we came from and where we're going and stuff like that. Thinking mm-hmm. about like, you know, that, that this is just, uh, this planet is just one part of the larger universe that we're part of, we've partaken and we're, we're part of. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Absolutely. So, you had written some, you had done some children's books. Tell us a bit about the children's books. And Well, I write, um, I've written a number of children's books. So I have written four, um, 40 children's books for a company called Smart Kids Club, which I love. They, they do wonderful work. They are traditional publishing. They're not self-publishing, so mm-hmm. they pay you. You don't pay them. Yeah. Um, they're wonderful. They do great illustrations. But they were all ebooks. And then I recently found out about a company called Acute by Design. It is a small press, again, not self publishing, to small press out of Connecticut. And I submitted a book to them called A Bella's Adventure. And this became my first physical children's book. Um, it is dedicated to my friend and her family who live in Brazil. And the story is about a Brazil, a parrot from Brazil. She's a um, Scarlet Macora, actually. And she moves to New York and she escapes from the family's apartment and ends up flying around the city and having an adventure. And the book features many illustrations um, of the city and of places in the city. It was illustrated by a wonderful young woman named Meg Petrillo. And she is actually an artist that was associated with uh, Project Art, which is an art program where we teach kids in libraries. It was a program I was associated with and she told me about. So I was able to work with her on this book, and the book came out beautifully. And we donated a portion of the proceeds of every book sold is going to an organization called the Wild Bird Fund, which is located out of Manhattan. And they are a wonderful organization that takes care of birds that are injured or abandoned. 
Um, they primarily deal with wild birds. They deal with sparrows, starlings, uh, swans, geese, ducks. But I'm sure that if you did find a parrot in the city that had escaped and you took it to them, they would they would look after it. They would take care of it. So I loved being able to give back to them because they're wonderful. Very cool. Very cool. And it connects with your interest in, preser- interest in preservation and mm-hmm. environmentalism and such. Absolutely. Very nice. Very Absolutely. nice. Very cool. I love animals. Anytime that I can help animals in any way, I will. So tell us also about the theater plays and the plays in the park. Um, also, that you wrote. Yes, I am a playwright, and I can't act to save my life. I would completely freeze on <laughs> yeah. stage. I can't handle it. Um, but I would. I love writing plays, and I've had two plays produced so far, both sport, short plays. But recently, I decided, you know, wouldn't it be great to start doing some plays in the park? So I have this play, um, it, it's, I call it the Statues Play, mm. and it's about these three statues, gold, silver, and bronze, and they live in a rich man's house, or sometimes if we're doing it outside in the rich man's garden, and they always, once he leaves, they come to life, and they bicker with one another about which one is the best. And then one day, a thief breaks into the property and has a sack big enough to hold one statue, and he's got to take one of them. So then the other two have to try to convince him to take the third one rather than them. So basically, it's like they at first say, oh, I'm the best, I'm the best. And then they're suddenly in a position to be like, no, I'm the worst. You don't want me, you don't want me. (laughs) So it's a very funny, silly play. It's good for all ages. And I actually decided to put that one on in the park just because it is so general and there's nothing in it that's offensive to anybody. It's good Mm. for a totally general audience. So I put in for um, a permit at at Flushing Meadows Corona Park in Queens. And the permit got approved, and the play was performed outside three times, um, usually every hour on the hour in the afternoon. Um, on May tw- Saturday, May 25th, it was performed right by the famous uh, Unisphere, you know, the big globe mm-hmm. in the park. And we got a fantastic reception. We really did. So um, I really enjoyed doing this. So now I'm looking into grants because I would love to get a grant to be able to put plays like this on in the park, um, not only in Queens, but all over the city. And I would love for it to be open, not just to my plays, but to playwrights in the city and beyond. Like, you know, we could have, if I, if I can get this going, I'm, I'm just getting into looking for grants now. And I was actually at a meeting earlier today when I was talking to somebody about securing different grants um, because I would love to open this up for actors and actresses and playwrights um, all over New York City and beyond and be able to share this, you know, with the public through public parks. And in the winter, hopefully we could get some indoor locations that might be interested in hosting it. Very interesting. interesting. And it's so great. I hope that uh, will listeners be able to assist in any way if they'd be able to yeah, find, I mean, out, if they have, find if out more if anybody knows anything about grants that might be interested in doing plays in the park please let me know i'm happy to talk about that and um if you're interested in submitting a play or if you're an actor or an actress who's interested in getting involved you can feel free to message me because i mean i'll just keep you on the radar as things progress yeah that's great and uh speaking a little bit about uh continue so many different aspects of your career and your and your uh um professional life and your creativity how are you able to manage all this like how tell us a little <laughs> bit about how yeah how are you able to you must use may size your brain to be able to you know work in different genres and and different modalities of thinking even game design i think you mentioned yeah i yeah. would say so i'm i don't actually have any toys or games on the market right now uh-huh. but i have a lot of ideas for toys and games because as a journalist um i cover pretty much everything that's arts entertainment or lifestyle and leisure connected I actually write for a blog called The Consensa Blog, which gets 100,000 views every single month, so over a million views a year. And on there, I cover exclusively toys and games. 
I have worked with the toy industry for many years now, and I love them. It is the best industry. Um, it just attracts the nicest people, and I absolutely love looking at how toys and games can be used not only for recreation, but can really be used as educational elements. Um, right now, I'm actually working on a PhD in Curriculum Instruction in the Science of Learning. It's a very fancy title, but it's uh, yeah. educational psychology. And um, I am my areas of interest are entertainment education and game, games-based learning and gamification to a lesser degree. Mm. And these are things that tie into the toy industry. So... What going back to your question, I do a lot of writing um, for my PhD. I do a lot of writing for my job, my journalism job. So sometimes it's wonderful. And then I also do writing. I'm a creative writer and playwright, I said. But that's where the art comes into it because it's great sometimes just to step away from the screen because I mostly do all my writing as like typing on my phone. It, sometimes I need to just get away from the screen and I just need to sit down with some paints and some oil pastels or whatever it is or like glue and mixed media and just sit there and just use another part of my brain just to get away from the writing. Yeah. And then after I do a lot of art, then I'm like, okay, now I'm going to go back to the writing. But even with the writing, it's very different to write for academics than it is to write for journalists. It's very different of journalism. It's very different to write a journalistic piece than it is to write a short story. Um, so it's all different types. So yeah, I use a lot of different types of my brain, but or different parts of my brain rather. Um, yeah. Sorry, I get tongue tied during interviews. <laughs> but um, basically, even though it's all different, it, it's all different. It kind of is in the same vein. So it just gives me something. It gives me a chance to like kind of spread my wings. Yeah, so great, I, great. And uh, if you were to say one word that describes you, or sort like if you were to capsulate it into a short. Short, powerful statement. Uh, what, how would you describe that? The thesis statement, if you will, or mission statement. Creative. I would creative, like. Yeah. I hope that people would describe me as either creative or original or yeah. unique. Creative, original, or unique. One of those three, but probably creative uh, first and foremost. <laughs> good, good, good. Um, so let's talk a little bit about uh, growing up and some mm -hmm. of your memories and and how your family. Uh, maybe were they fostering of this and how in what way oh, they yeah. were? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm an only child, and my parents, mm. Michael and Mary, are the best people in the world. Um, yeah. They have always been really, really supportive of me, and they are the ones that sparked my interest in the arts. Because from the time that I was really young, they were always reading to me. So that was always my exposure to children's books. So I learned how to read when I was two years old because they mm. read to me so, so much. And then I also um, was taken to museums a lot as a kid. I was exposed to art very much at a young age, and I think that that also... Um, really fostered it. And then, of course, they gave me access to things like clay and paint and pencils. And even when I was little and just sitting there kind of, you know, making a mess, it still fostered that. Um, mm -hmm. They have done so much. Like, they drive me around to galleries and help me set up art when I have an exhibition. So, I mean, I'm very, very fortunate. And I'm working my PhD right now, and I still live at home. And, I mean, I just, I'm so fortunate to have the parents that I do. I get along really well with them. And yeah, ev not everybody is lucky to have good parents, and very few people are as fortunate to have the kind of parents I do. Yeah, so. great, great. Thank you, thank mm. you. So, um, as you grew up, then you studied, uh, you, uh, tell us a little bit more about your studies and how that informs, you know, about your PhD and all that, yeah. Well, I have always wanted to teach online. I yeah. really, I'm, I'm a big proponent, and I was homeschooled, so I'm a big perform, uh, proponent in um, individualized learning. But I really like online education the best mm. just because each class is led by a professional in their field. And it's, it's fun to talk to the other students and stuff too. So um, I'm a big, big, big believer in online education. And I have always wanted to design online courses and teach online, especially at the college level. The college level is really where I want to go. 
So um, I was always interested in, I mean, obviously my area would be literature, um, writing, journalism. So I started out with a bachelor's degree in English literature from New York Institute of Technology, and I, I loved it. I did that online, and I absolutely loved it. I did really, really well, and I was nervous going into college, but I ended up graduating early and summa cum laude, which really like reinforced, like, wow, I'm, I'm good at this. Yeah. And then I went on to my uh, master's degree at Marist College. I also did that online. And I had a 3.9 GPA when I graduated there, which was great, and a thesis. And now I'm working um, on a PhD with uh, University of Buffalo SUNY. And I will say that of all the schools I've been in, this is the best. This school is fantastic. I would recommend them to anybody. Um, they just have the most lovely, caring staff and professors. I mean, I, I can't say enough good things about this school. I really Excellent. cannot. I'm so happy there. But um, with them, I wanted to major in um, educational psychology or curriculum instruction in the science of learning because, again, using my degree in communication and my degree in English literature as a backdrop, I want to design online courses and online programs um, mm. for the future because I believe that learning online is the way of the future. Yeah. So that's really what I want to do as my career. I'm always going to always do my art and I'm going to always do my writing. And I've been lucky that you know I've sold pieces of art, I've won awards, but I can't make a living doing that. Mm. But I can definitely make a living being a professor and a curriculum designer and that's why I'm going for the PhD. Excellent, excellent. And the question is then, uh, is one lifetime really enough? I mean, is you know, <laughs> I don't is, think so. are you satisfied? Uh, with how you're going and do you feel that you'll achieve what you want I hope so. yeah. I've already done a lot like I'm yeah. I'm going to be 32 June 17th I'm still technically 31 but I've done a lot in my life so far like I've had three novels published my fourth one's coming out in December excellent, I've had kid books published yeah. I don't have an agent yet that's what I'm looking for yeah but I feel like I've already done quite a bit and a lot of artists uh, live a long time. Now, I hope I'm not jinxing myself by saying that. But a lot of artists do regularly <laughs> live to like, you know, yeah. 80, 90, 100 years old. So hopefully yeah. I do have, hopefully I get a lot more done. I mean, but I got to say, I'm, I, I'm not disappointed with how I've done so far. I mean, some artists like, some artists have never sold a piece of work in their life. You know, I've sold work, yeah. I've done commissions. I can't. I can't complain, but I don't know whether one lifetime is enough. And there's a lot of religions that believe that in reincarnation, yeah. it's can come back. So who knows? Like, maybe it, it, it is possible. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So also you have uh, on your bio, you talk a little bit about uh, Curated Cat Cafe. Uh, yes. <laughs> tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. I am, aside from being an artist, I'm getting more and more into curation. And um, this summer, I am planning to curate a show at the Cafe. Shabby Tabby Cat Cafe in uh, Sayville, Long Island. Uh, and what this cafe is, is it is, as you might have guessed from the name, it's a cat cafe. So people that go in there, do not go in there if you're allergic, obviously. But um, people go to this cafe and you can get, you know, coffee and something to eat. And you get to spend time in a space with a bunch of cats that are available for adoption. Mm. So I am a huge animal lover, and I have three cats myself, one of whom was rescued from a dumpster when she was, um, how old? When she was eight weeks old. Mm. Um, so because of that, you know, when I found out about this cat cafe, which is open, I thought, oh, this is wonderful. So what I'm planning to do is to promote um, an art program or a curated show where we're going to do a call for artists for people to submit work that is somehow cat themed and it can be totally abstract it can be totally realistic we're going to take a range of styles we just ask that the work be kind of small like you know postcard size or like a couple of inches because like the, the smaller it is the more people we can fit in the show and um, there'll be a little entry fee but once you once you enter and pay the entry fee you're guaranteed to have your work shown at the mm. show and um, we'll be giving a, a portion of the entry fee proceeds a portion of the proceeds 
proceeds of anything sold and a portion of proceeds for anything that we do in conjunction with this, like for example, if we decide to have a raffle, to the organization that provides the cats to the cat cafe, and that is called the Golden Paul Society, and they are out in Huntington, New York. Um, so I would love to start curating shows um, for other organizations that do good things, especially for animals. I would love to do something like this for the Wild Bird Fund. I would love to do something like this for Best Friends, which um, takes in dogs and cats uh, in New York as well. Um, and I would just love to continue to curate shows to give artist exposure and opportunity to be shown, um, raise awareness for these wonderful venues like the Cat Cafe that does kind things for animals, and also gives a portion of the proceeds to the charities that help. So, And, and I would love to extend this um, who knows, maybe one day I could even start curating shows uh, to be put in hospitals to cheer the mm. patients up. But I, I like the idea of doing curation that has a charitable edge. That's Again, really great, spreading yeah. joy. <laughs> that's really great. And I think that's a really great mission and um, objective. And thinking about um, one of the questions we were discussing before was about, you know, animals and our relationship with animals and, mm -hmm. and our relationship with whether or not, or, you know, in my own journey, I know, um, I mean, I guess like these are kind of certain beliefs about whether the animals have like sentience or, or souls mm -hmm. have really evolved over the years, oh, yeah. you know, thinking about how much, how, how much emotion, how much uh, intelligence, how much uh, capacity mm -hmm. they have for, um, you know, just living and such mm -hmm. and just really intelligence and so oh, yeah animals was, definitely yeah. have souls i don't yeah. know how anybody could say they don't yeah i mean animals are so smart and they i mean in a lot of ways they're better than us in many ways mm. like if you look at animals like canada geese which are much maligned for absolutely no reason because mm. they're like the sweetest animals but people go on and on oh you know they hiss they hiss well if it's hissing at you it's because you're harassing it and you did something <laughs> to deserve it yeah but if you look at them they are such good parents they never leave their babies yeah. now how much can you say that for humans i mean humans i mean look at i mean yeah. Yeah. We have way more problems. Dogs give endless love. Um, parrots, I mean, um, what are they? Um, the little, the white guys, the cockatoos. They're known to be in, as intelligent as a three-year-old child. And people say the same thing for the African greys, the little gray guys with the red tail. But mm -hmm. the, the cockatoos, the really friendly, um, they're, they're either white with yellow on their heads or they can also come in like a pink color. They're known to be very, very affectionate and very, very smart. And I have two parakeets and I can tell you they're incredibly intelligent. They're all individuals. So anybody that says an animal doesn't have a soul has never shared their space with an animal and doesn't know <laughs> what they're talking about. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about like some of the influencing factors, influencing art, influencing uh, works, artifacts, we like I think of them as within any genre that uh, really had an impact on the way you're thinking and your evolution of your thought? Well, my the, the, the impact on my art primarily was being exposed very young to things like Joan Moreau and Calder because when I would look at those as a kid, I would think, oh my God, they have captured imagination. Yeah. You know, because nobody knows what imagination looks like. Nobody knows what inspiration looks like or muse looks like. But I think that if they were to look like something, they would look like Moreau or Calder's pieces. Mm. Um and even Matisse's like collage work too, as well. As I said before, and for those unfamiliar, um, just give a, a brief verbal description of what 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 genre. Oh, Moreau, Moreau, Moreau yeah. and Calder and Matisse—they're abstract artists. They abstract work artists, in yeah. very colorful abstract forms. And when you look at their work, you can either sometimes you can see things in the forms, other times you can't. You just everybody mm. looks at it and perceives it differently. Mm. And I just loved that as a kid. So um, definitely Google them. Calder is C A L D E R, and Moreau is M I R O. Definitely, definitely look them up because they are the ones that most influenced me from an artistic standpoint. From a writing standpoint, um, 
That really depends. I mean, obviously, with my academic work, it's like for educational psychology, entertainment mm. education, games-based learning. For journalists, it's anybody that I'm... I specialize in Q&As, and I write about anybody in the creative field or the arts field. But um, as far as my creative writing goes, I'm influenced by a range of things. Like for the Abella's Adventure, the children's book, the publisher liked writing about books with multicultural themes. So I thought, oh, you know, I'll do a multicultural theme about a parrot from Brazil because my best friend lives in Brazil. And then I can dedicate the book to her children. And um, it was nice to be able to do that. So sometimes I will tailor ideas based on the publisher I'm giving it to. Other times it depends on the genre. Um, so, for example, with fantasy stories, I'm very influenced by the Grimm's fairy tales. Um, when I write science fiction, I'm very um, influ- I'm very influenced by things that are actually in the news, as well as you know Star Wars and Star Trek, of course, all of that. Um, and um, then when it comes to horror, you know that's my the genre I'm probably most well known for. If you Google me, you'll find a lot of my horror stories have been audio narrated by Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. They're a really really great company that has a awesome YouTube channel. And a lot of my stories from there either came from just, they used to run writing contests where they would give us a picture and we'd have to think of a story based on the picture. So that would sometimes get my muse going. Um, other times it's just based on just random things. You know, I can get ideas just standing in a store. I can get ideas driving. I mean, there's been times when I get ideas, I have to write them down on my mm. phone or whatever else. I'm going to forget them. So there's been times that like, I've literally been shopping and had to put down all my stuff wow. just to type something up on the phone. So the idea <laughs> yeah. does not escape. That's great. It's great. Yeah. I think the artist's life is a struggle because they always want to, you know, surf those ideas, keep those uh, receptive Absolutely. ideas, be open <laughs> to the environment and think about, you know, where, where you want to go with your art and where you want, where you're coming from and all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Yeah. Really great. Really great. And um, speaking a little bit more about uh, your upcoming projects, you talked a little bit about the novel and short film that's coming up. Yep. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. So yeah. I have um, my fourth novel, which is actually a novel, uh, um, called Sycopent is coming out in December of this year um, with a company called Alban Lake Publishing or Alban Lake Press. Uh, they're out of Iowa. And again, they're small pre- they're small publisher, but they are not tra- self-publishing. I've never self-published anything. They're a traditional mm. publisher. And they're wonderful. They publish um, horror, science fiction, and fantasy. So after I do this horror story with them, I'm definitely going to be giving them um, science fiction and fantasy works as well. And I also have a short story anthology coming up with a company called Stitched Smile Publications out of Texas, which is, again, like no small uh, traditional press. Um, And with Stitched Smile, um, I really am happy to be working with them because I also design and, um, and teach online writing classes, online creative writing classes. And the thing that makes my creative writing classes different is that at the end of eight weeks, every single student in my class can expect to have a short story completed. And then the short story will be audio narrated by Otis Jiry or one of the other talented voice actors from associated with Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and put on YouTube. And on top of that, the story will then be compiled into an anthology, which will be published by Stitch Smile Publications. So I've run a couple of horror writing classes already, and we are going to be publishing the first anthology that's based on all of that, that includes all of those stories in 2020. And I'm really looking forward working with Stitch Smile on this for also for fantasy and science fiction. 
And then I also have my first uh, children's book writing class coming out at the end of this year. Actually, August 1st, we're launching that. And with that one, it's going to be with Smart Kids Club, the ebook publisher. And at the end of that class, everybody that attends can uh, can expect to see their story professionally illustrated, professionally audio narrated, and then put up for sale on the uh, Smart Kids Club website. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, it's a really great opportunity, I think. And then Thank you. Sounds like a really great yeah, opportunity. I, yeah, I've seen a lot of writing classes where people finish a story at the end, but then it's like, well, what next? Where would mm. it go from here? Mm. With the classes that I design, it's not only are you going to get your story um, finished, you're going to see it published and you're going to see it audio narrated so you can and buy again by all traditional not self-publishing presses so that's something that you can then use to launch your career and then even go and say you know hey i took part in this writing class and ended with this publication and that's something that you can show to publishers when you write other work that you want to show off and try to get um out there because it's hard to get work published especially when you don't have an agent and I've just been very fortunate. My life as a journalist has really helped me make a lot of connections with people that have made all this possible. So it's great to have these wonderful organizations that are willing to um, work with me and willing to collaborate. Excellent, excellent. And uh, what advice would you give to uh, artists or writers uh, who are listening, who want to be able to have the kind of fluidity of expression, be able to have the kind of diversity of, of talent and all this kind of thing? What, what advice would you have for them to be able to, to break through? You really just have to follow your inspiration. You want to mm. be different. You want to be unique. So you don't have to follow a cookie cutter mold. Um, you know, like with my work, it's all like three-dimensional and pops off a wall. And people, when I first started it, I didn't even know if it was going to work, but it did. Yeah. So what you need to do is just do something that you think is fun and mm. you think is cool and you think, you know, oh, this is interesting. And then you'll find that a lot of other people will agree. Don't do something just because you think it's trendy or it's popular mm. or, you know, oh, if I draw this or if I use this, you know, then I'll get the most likes on Instagram and everybody <laughs> will like it. And maybe that is true, but I don't think that that will drive you. I think to really be driven, you have to do something that you legitimately enjoy doing. And if you like the way that a piece of art turns out, a story turns out, a piece of music you made turns out, then you'll find that a lot of other people might very well enjoy it as well. At least that has been my experience. So it's really just... Just follow your your own path. Try to be different. Try to be unique, and um, don't worry if you occasionally get you know a you know a bad response. Because if you do something that's unique and different and new, you're always going to get a number of people that are just going, "Oh my goodness, what is this? What is what? What mental illness do you have?" Like you know, <laughs> but you have to just be aware that the majority of people, especially in the art world, are more open-minded and will probably think, oh, that's really, really cool. Because I know, mm. like, myself, I love work that's, like, unique and different. And even with, like, theater plays, if anything is, like, really unique or different, that's usually what I end up enjoying the most. Yeah. And what would you say in your life, um, you have so many achievements, so many different things that you've done. One achievement that you really want to, you're really aiming for that may be a little bit of a long-term goal. I was securing my PhD. Oh, yeah. Getting the PhD. That's, yeah, that's good, been my yeah. goal. I've wanted the PhD since I was 15. I've never wanted anything as badly as I want this. Yeah, so yeah. Um, I'm hoping to have it by 2021. Knock on wood. Yeah. We'll see. But um, that is that is my major goal. Good, good. Getting the PhD. Yeah. That is by far. That's that's become an obsession, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> and what would you say is one thing that you definitely don't want to achieve or you think that you definitely or you wouldn't do or you'd... you'd um, Anything to do with breaking the law. I am, yeah, such, a, I am yeah. such a timid person. Like yeah. I'm literally like I am. I don't. I don't drink 
let alone do any drugs. I yeah. don't party. I'm just, I'm a very timid person and I would never, ever, ever want to do anything to break the law. Like, because I yeah. just, so I think like in the future, I mean, obviously I'm going to have to go and get um, a banker or some professional to do my taxes <laughs> because I'd be so terrified of filling out a form <laughs> wrong and winding up in, like, uh, in trouble over it. So funny. yeah, so anything, I don't even jaywalk. Like I'm just, I'm very, very straight-laced. So like I just, and I'm yeah. very anxious and I'm kind of, nervous wreck so i don't ever want to do anything to get into trouble i, I don't <laughs> like getting in trouble <laughs> yeah cool cool so we'll take a moment now do some shout outs uh to ready for brooklyn before we, we'll continue the conversation but i'll just take a moment to say um you know uh ready for brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy education and free expression we rely primarily on donations from listeners like you so to help support our mission, we invite you to make a one-time donation, a monthly pledge at readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Every cent helps us continue to stand air. So please support independent community media by pledging whatever you can afford. All contributions are tax deductible to folks sent to law. Again, it's readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. And you can go to readyforbrooklyn.org slash truth to power. Uh, sponsor this show. Um, find out about our uh, regular broadcast on Mondays at 8 a.m., uh, listen to our past 75 episodes. Um, if you're listening to Ready for Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please consider downloading our free mobile apps for iPhone and Android. Available at the app stores uh, for the Google Play and uh, for uh, iPhone. Uh, tonight, if you're listening to this broadcast live, tonight we're doing a uh, four-year anniversary party. That's already started. The party's already started, but it goes on till 10 p.m. So feel free to stop by the Tradesman's Bar at 222 Bushwick Avenue in Brooklyn, New York. Um, uh, we're celebrating our anniversary of the blah party outdoor in the big backyard of Tradesman Bar off the L train stop on Montrose. It's free, but we're nonprofits. So we love a donation. If you spent any time with us in the past four years, please come by. And we really like to meet you or host volunteers. Listeners and listeners to be will all be there in the flesh. There's nothing better than the backyard party hosted by our hosts. And no worries if it rains. Uh, we have an indoor option and the info and more on our website, readyforbrooklyn.org. Uh, I believe that's all the announcements. Now, uh, if you want to also give a plug for your either Instagram or anything, any websites or anything that anything you want to upcoming uh, before, okay. and then we'll keep the conversation going for a few more minutes and then. But anything you want to plug, uh, any upcoming. Um. I don't have any. I mean, I would like to plug my up, uh, my upcoming uh, children's book writing class, yeah. which is going to take place on August 1st. It's going to be entirely online. It's going to be eight weeks long. Um, there's no specific time to meet. You can just come online and just work um, to your you, you, to your own schedule, basically. Um, there's payment plans available for the course. And um, again, at the end of it, you can expect to have your book professionally illustrated, uh, professionally audio narrated, and then put up for sale as an ebook on Smart Kids Club. Um, and Smart Kids Club is, um, it's just like it sounds, Smart Kids Club, except uh, the word kids, there's a Z at the end instead of an S. But uh, Google them because they're a really good company. Um, I don't have a website yet. I'm working on a website right yeah. now. But if you want to um, email me, you can email me at Megan at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. That's M-E-A-G-A-N um, at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights dot com. So it's just C H. I-L-L-I-N-G-F-O-R-D-A-R-K 
N-I-G-H-T-S dot com. So Megan, Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Um, the reason that I have that email is that that's the email that I associated with, when I'm associated with uh, Chilling Tales, which is the company that produces a lot of my horror shows, my horror stories, because again, I am known as a horror writer. And if you also are interested in one of my um, horror writing classes or upcoming science fiction fantasy story classes or crime drama classes that again will result in the book eventually being published in an anthology with Stitch Smile, please feel free to email me. Cool, cool. So I definitely encourage uh, folks to reach out. And uh, uh, also, if they've been interested in uh, participating in the Truth to Power Show, feel free to re- write to truth2powershow at gmail.com, uh, spelled out truth2powershow at gmail.com, so that we can have a conversation about. Uh, right now, the guests have been scheduled until October, but uh, it's always, hap- always happy to, to have a conversation about uh, including guests. Um, so to also talk a little bit about um, uh, a couple further questions about yourself and your mm-hmm. psychology and psychological process. So um, would you consider yourself an introvert or an extrovert? Introvert, definitely. I can uh, be extroverted when I need to be. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, I'm majorly an introvert. Uh, <laughs> it just feels like you're such a articulate speaker. You So much of this energy feels extroverted. <laughs> I guess many introverts learn that, myself included, learn yeah. these skills. It's funny. I can't yeah. come out of my shell when I'm talking about my work. Yeah. Or, and I'm also good like when I'm at, I go as a journalist, I go to a lot of conventions and stuff. Yeah. And I'm fine there going up and talking to people. But for the most part, when like I'm on my own and like I'm not either uh, working or talking about my work, I'm very, yeah. very quiet. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's good. It's good though. It's good to have that introspective feel and be able to oh, see yeah. inside and, and be able to be able to and develop to those skills, you know com- yourself. Be comfortable in your own skin. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, um, yeah, and then uh, thinking about, uh, we talked a lot about your life goals and and mm-hmm. and what what kind of mark you want to leave on 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 society and on on the humanity mm-hmm. and on those around you. Um, what would you say uh, if you were to write like a little like final word kind of thing or final like at the end of your life you were to say you're not or let's uh, say from this from this marker. Up till now, if you're like like a little lesson or a little final word kind of a thing, what would it be, or what, what kind of lesson would you uh, impart? Uh, I think the question actually was, what do you want your final words to be? But we don't I know. Think yeah, I would want my final yeah. words to probably be something like, "Well, it was fun. Oh, yeah, well, that was fun. You know, yeah. had a fun life." Um, but as far as what I would like to leave behind, like as a final statement, I suppose you know what my art would probably speak louder than my words. Uh, so, or I guess my words speak the loudest if it was talking about my stories. But I would like my art, whether it be my writing or my um, stories to, or my my visual art to speak for itself. If I can leave behind something that years from now, long long after I'm dead, makes somebody smile or make somebody go, "Oh my goodness, look at this! Or, this is great!" The same way that famous artists work do, that would be great. If my stories can live on entertain people generations from now that would be perfect and i'm just starting to get into film now i think we we nearly mentioned that yeah i could have missed that um i just got my first screenplay um greenlit for production by a company called unknown works they're out of brooklyn and los angeles and it's um it's a it's it's a short film and it's a comedy it's about these two children in the supermarket who see the cereal that's knocked over and they try to think hmm how did the cereal get knocked over and then there's these increasingly um bizarre ways that the cereal got knocked over so the film is going to be um shot at probably at Stu Leonard's in Farmingdale, Long Island, in June of 2020. And we are really looking forward to that. That is going to be my very first film that I've worked on because I've I've had I've written screenplays, but that's my first screenplay to get developed. And I'm also working on a bunch of horror screenplays that um, have been produced by a guy called Mike um, Michael Davis, who is out of 
California. He is a wonderful director, and they're both these are mostly horror films, and well, one's a crime drama, long film, and he's going to be working with me to produce those. Um, you know, I I just give the screen, I just give him the scripts, and then he's a genius and knows what to do with them. But I probably will be out at Farmingdale on set the day that they film the short comedy film out on um, Long Island. So I'm looking forward to that. And again, if my mo- if my screenplays become movies and the movies can live on in history and entertain people um, for generations to come, then I'm very happy. Yeah, really very, great, very really great. <laughs> That's really great. And uh, more abstractly, I would say one question I have is, what do you think is truth and, and uh, what is the meaning of truth? Is there, we're talking about subjective versus objective mm-hmm. and uh, whether or not, there is an objective truth or a subjective truth, mm-hmm. and we talked a little about in that regard in regards to beauty or artistic beauty mm-hmm. or in art. But what would you say in regards to truth, whether or not there is a objective or subjective? That is a really great question, and that's a very difficult question to answer, which it should be because it's yeah. philosophical. But I would say truth can actually. A lot of people say, "Oh, you know, the truth is written in stone," but you know, the truth can. In, like, there are certain truths that are written in stone. Like, for example what happened today. Mm. Like, you know, for example, there's a timeline of events that mm. definitely happened. So if you get in a security camera, you know, like this person walked left and they walked right. Okay, that's that's definitely truth. But when it comes to other truths, like, you know, the truths that, that there's personal truths, like people's experiences shape their perceptions. Mm. And that shapes what they believe to be true. So somebody may have had, you know, really bad experiences their whole lives with dogs, let's say. Let's say that somebody grew up in a neighborhood where all the neighbors had vicious dogs and all you ever saw was like the dogs barking or snarling or you were bitten and then there's news reports, the dogs biting people. That person's going to grow up being totally terrified of dogs and they can say dogs are vicious, this is true. And look, I can prove that this is true because I was bitten, my friend was bitten, look, it was in the news, the police had to come get the dog. So, okay, so for that person, that is their truth based on their experiences. But then if you look at, you know, people that have had positive experience with dogs that were either, you know, caregivers or cute little dogs or just friendly little love muffins, you know, those are people that are going to love dogs and say, oh, no, dogs are nice because, look, I have proof that they're nice. So the truth can be, in that way, it can be subjective because both parties could be telling the truth, you know. On one person's experiences, yes, dogs can be vicious, and they probably did truthfully have vicious dogs. Mm. The other person that loves dogs did truthfully know lovely, cute, mellow dogs. So both statements are true, one thinking they're vicious, one thinking they're not. It's based on their perceptions. So yeah. I think that in certain instances, truth can definitely be um, very subjective and very flexible, and it is very much tainted by people's experiences. And that is why, you know, I feel like you never know what somebody else is going through. So every single day you try to be polite to everybody and nice to everybody because you don't know what they went through. And I just kind of feel that if you're nice to somebody, it makes them remember that you were nice to them. So, for example, like I'm, you know, young, young white woman, but I figured that like if I am nice to everybody, even somebody that may have had bad experiences with, you know, young white women in the past might remember that, you know, oh, you know, I was polite to them or I was courteous to them. Mm. And then hopefully like that kind of makes them think, oh, you know, that was a nice experience. Yeah. I think that, you know, when you when you think about truth and when you think about, you know, um, prejudices that people carry or preconceived Mm. notions that people carry, if you can do everything that you can do to be nice and polite to somebody, you can kind of, you know, do a lot to 
show a good side of life and then that will maybe you know alter their perception of what they think about you as being true yeah it was being true but i do think you know in some cases the truth is absolutely set in stone like you know this happened this time this timeline or whatever or, you mm. know the sky is blue or you know um the floor is wood or you know certain yeah. things are definitely true yeah. but in other instances the truth can definitely be subjective and very much influenced by people's personal experiences incredible yeah very nice very nice and i think that when we think about facts versus truth and 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 a lot of the themes of the show have to do with you know discovering our personal truths digging deep and mm -hmm. understanding what the origins or the the roots of these oh, yeah. perceptions and these uh, these experiences we have this consciousness we've generated yeah. that's another thing uh, you yeah. have to be you have to be true to yourself not everybody is equipped to go to college yeah not everybody is equipped to be like you know you know, doctors or lawyers, like, you know, I don't know what I would do if they put me in medical school. I'd probably pass out the side of blood. But everybody's different. You know, some yeah. people are better off in vocation. Some people are better off in academics. You know, it, yeah. it, you have to be true to yourself. And not mm. one size does not fit all. Everybody's an individual, and you have to be able to be comfortable with yourself and know yourself to mm. be able to decide what you want to do in life. And yeah. there's many different roads to take. Cool, cool. So uh, once again, people can. This has been the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. People can uh, check out our past seventy-five episodes at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org/slash/truth-to-power. I'm probably gonna at some point create a guide to uh, once when I get around hundred, I'll get a guide to kind of organizing episodes. But for now, we'll go out uh, in the next few minutes with uh, you selected a song, Megan. Yep. Tell us a little bit about the song and, and, and why you selected it. Yeah. This is a song that was released in 1999 when I was 12. I'm, I'm dating myself here. Uh -huh. But I've always loved this song. I love Hershey's um, the Candy. And this was a song that was actually on the Hershey's Candy commercial um, for a couple of years. And this is a song called Smile by Vitamin C. And it's just a happy, joyful song, and I think it fits very well with my art and a lot of my writing. So cool, cool. It's so a blast we'll from the past, released on June 29th, 1999. <laughs> so. We'll be listening to Smile by Vitamin C to go out. And our next show, I believe, is Mockumental. So they'll be coming in to uh, please tune in. Please continue to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn. And uh, uh, I'll be doing another episode of Potluck Dinner on July 5th. Uh, and also I'll be doing a... Um, uh, Gameplay Radio, I'll be subbing in for Gameplay Radio on June 23rd. So please listen to Gameplay Radio on June 23rd and every Sunday at 2 p.m. Uh, Potluck Dinner always serves up a, a random or a different host every week. So we'll be listening to uh, listen in and continue to listen to Radio for Brooklyn. And we'll be listening to Smob by Vitamin C. <laughs>